Is the American church divided? Well, if you would have asked me that question on Monday, November 9th, 2020, I might have definitely agreed with that statement. Yes, the American church is divided. That morning, I woke up to a phone call from a faithful member of the church that I served. And in that phone call, this faithful Christian told me that she was leaving the local church. And why was she leaving the church? Because she believed that in a sermon series in which I explained the issues, those pronounced issues of our day as I explain them from the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about the individual, about human sexuality, about marriage, about topics related to abortion? As I had preached through a series on the issues, looking at the Word of God and asking what does it say, uh, she was deeply concerned because I had not taken the time to endorse any presidential candidate. In her assumption a local pastor is responsible for endorsing a political figure, especially a presidential candidate, and a failure to do so was the reason why President Donald Trump lost the election just six days before. In her mind, it was the responsibility of pastors like me, and because we had failed to endorse a specific candidate, the inevitable doom of our country, because he had lost the election, was on my shoulders and on the shoulders of pastors like me. Now, there's a lot there to unpack, and I'm not going to chase the rabbit trails that I could, but I think it's very interesting to note this perception of the responsibilities of a local pastor. But this assumption of how a Christian should respond in this moment was certainly explained throughout our conversation, and I left that conversation deeply discouraged. I thought about it throughout the rest of the day. Well, at least until I received an email later that night. That night I received a scathing email from another woman in the church. And this email was one that accused me of endorsing a political candidate. In fact, it accused me of endorsing President Donald Trump uh, in specific. And because the perception was that I had endorsed him from the pulpit, this family was also leaving the church. Now I stepped back and I had to wonder, which one did I actually do? Did I endorse him or did I not? And just in clarity, I did not. I don't believe it's the responsibility of a pastor to endorse a political candidate. Instead, my responsibility is to simply explain what the Word of God says and to provide reasonable application points as they relate to our day from the text. How do we apply what we read, understanding that what we read is to be interpreted through the lens of the original audience. What did it mean to the original audience, but in specific, how do I apply it in my day and time? Well, in spite of my stated philosophy of preaching, which I have never been shy from explaining, there were these sort of accusations kind of hanging out there of what I did or what I had failed to do. And it certainly represented a divided America. And so if you would have asked me on that day, is the American church divided? I would have said, certainly. But as I step back today, I would answer that question a little differently. Today we're going to be looking at an article that I found on Christianity Today. And it was actually a sponsored article, and so it was one that was a partner of Christianity Today. 
for that reason, the article was actually more of an advertisement, and so it was sort of limited in its scope. I did take time to investigate the uh, organizations that are described or referenced in this article, and uh, I'll spend a little bit of time talking about them, but not a whole lot. I want to use this article as a springboard more than just discussing what individual organizations do. And so please understand what I'm going to discuss within that context. So the article is is titled, A Vision for Healing the Divided American Church, which tells you right off the bat the assumption is that the American church is deeply divided, and that is problematic. It says a new organization empowers Christian leaders to bridge toxic divides. Okay, so this this article is actually an ad that is going to encourage an individual's partnership with this organization that empowers Christian leaders to bridge toxic divides. It reads, 59, that's the number of times the New Testament instructs, instructs Christians on how to treat one another. Be at peace with each other. Be kind and compassionate. Live in harmony. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. It says, love is the bedrock of Christian faith, and kindness is a concept we teach our kids from their first moments of understanding. But these ideas are more easily envisioned than put into practice. Both local congregations and online spaces highlight how many of us have lost touch with caring for one another, especially when we disagree. Over the past few years, politicians and pundits have fostered growing polarization and racial division, a trend amplified by the American church. Now think about that language that's being used. There is great moral evil in the world, and we would recognize those things as such, but then it says that that these are amplified by the American church. We are a party to this evil, to this division in our land, it claims. Continuing my reading, rather than faithfully embodying the one another verses, too often the church has embraced and even fueled needless divides. Now, again, this is projecting guilt upon the local church uh, because there's a there's a failure to contend for unity while at the same time endorsing practices that are divisive and the topics over which these bodies of Christ are dividing are needless, according to this article. Okay, these actions impair the church's mission and distort its contribution to the world. Only 28% of Americans have a favorable view of evangelicals, and even within the faith, political division is one of the primary reasons pastors are considering leaving ministry. Now, I just have to pause there and say, even on November 9th, 2020, I didn't end the day thinking, I need to leave ministry. I was simply grieved for the state of the American church. Continuing. Many Christians are left feeling heartbroken, wondering if anything can be done to reconcile fractured relationships and restore the church's reputation. Ultimately, the divided American church needs a restored vision for true community, a vision that does not seek to eliminate disagreement, but instead fosters unity within diverse diverse con- congregations. It says congreg- uh, churchgoers say they prefer a political homogeneous congregation. Many who cling to sameness balk at the call for unity, interpreting it as a command to accept all theological interpretations and positions. But unity isn't the erasure or blind acceptance. It is an effort to love one another as image bearers of God. In John 13, Jesus provides a model for harmony as he spoke to his disciples hours before his crucifixion. 
A new command I give you, love one another, he began. As I have loved you, so must you love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That same evening, Jesus prayed, asking the Father that they may be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. This is the vision God has for humanity. Now, it's kind of interesting there that this article says humanity and not for the church. Continuing, promoting or accepting polarization is antithetical to the way of Christ because it damages relationships among believers and tarnishes the church's reputation among those watching from the outside. Actively pursuing unity prioritizes human dignity above personal preferences. It's a continual commitment to those 59 verses. So this is a really interesting article or ad that is uh, presented as an article on Christianity Today, uh, but it addresses the fact that they see, the, these this organization sees a divide in the American church. And I would say that it is true that many believers experience conflict with one another. That is true in secular society. It is true within our churches as well. This is inevitable in a fallen world. At the same point, I do want to just step back and say that not all conflict is bad. Not all times where there is disagreement does that mean that something has gone awry. In fact, uh, I have a number of uh, friends and colleagues and even family members with whom I have theological differences. We might have different assumptions about, say, end times prophecy. We don't treat those as trivial matters, uh, but at the same point, Having an understanding that we disagree with one another provides an opportunity to sit down and learn from one another, to engage in healthy dialogue, and perhaps even to change our views if the Word of God is presented in such a way that its teaching is clear on the subject. Sometimes within local churches, there are discussions about vision and which way to go, and people might have strong feelings one way or another, and those are not always bad. It is healthy for believers to sit down and talk through those things in order to form a common vision that is realized through healthy discussion and even sometimes through banter. Uh, at the same time, uh, we do recognize that conflict can be bad and that if it is done in an unhealthy way, if it's done in a way to tear somebody else down, that it is bad. And so we want to be very clear about those subjects. But as we read through this article, it goes ahead and it describes uh, an organization called Erebon, uh, and it describes how this organization has been employed by a church in Ashland, Virginia, and how it helped the church to grow in their reconciliation uh, practices. And so this is what it says. It says, Erebon worked with church leadership and eventually the congregation as a whole to mend generational gaps, improve cultural intelligence, and update the church's ministries and practices to better meet the needs of the community. Through Erebon's training in reconciliation, collaboration on messaging, such as sermons and songs and community resources, the First Baptist congregation learned together how to navigate complex conversations. So they say, uh, look, the American church is broken, and this organization has found a way to bridge this toxic divide, and they do this through information, through training programs where pastors, ministries, uh, laity are taught how to better meet the needs of the community, how to mend these generational gaps, how to improve cultural intelligence, 
and uh, and how to update the church's ministries and practices in order to meet these ends. And so this is what is propped up as the way to bridge this divide. So you say, here's the problem. The American church is so divided. It is so polarized. There's so much conflict. Most of these conversations are needless. Most of these divisions are. And so we're able to overcome them through uh, cultural intelligence and learning appropriate uh, methods to bridge generational gaps among other sort of divisions that exist. But I would ask, is that the end goal? Is the end goal for us to have unity for the sake of unity, where we say the goal is to improve our cultural intelligence? And so we are going to draft sermons and songs around that point. And so when we gather together, the goal is not to explain what the text clearly says and to go where it leads us, but instead it is to gain cultural awareness, to be able to bridge gaps, and to address what we perceive to be the divisive issues in our culture. Is that the the end goal for Christianity? Well, I, I don't think so. I think that there is a better way to strive for and ta- to maintain unity than just educating our churches on cultural intelligence, on programs that can a- accomplish the end goal of whatever they define unity to mean. And I think that sometimes in order to bridge those gaps, we have to have uh, difficult conversations where we recognize that some of the divisions we have are not simply personal preferences. Now I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. What I don't want to do today is spend time looking at this organization and addressing everything that they offer and critiquing it, but instead, as I said in my opening remarks, I want to use this article as a springboard to launch off it and to discuss a better way to bridge unity than what I'm simply reading in this article. And again, it is just a snapshot of an organization, and so I'm not going to spend a lot of time developing that, and again, their specific offerings. But instead, let's go ahead and look at this better way to build and maintain unity within our local churches. Well, the first thing that I want to say as we look at this uh, article today and this general subject is that... I don't want you to be discouraged. I'm actually going to open up today with a few don'ts, a few things not to do. I'm going to give you four things not to do. And the first one is do not be discouraged. As I said, if you were to ask me on the evening of November 9th, 2020, do I think that the American church is deeply divided? I would have said yes, certainly so. That year, it felt like everything was so polarizing and you had to take one position or another. And no matter which position you took, it was inevitable that conflict would arise as a result. But stepping back, and as I look back at that time period, I wondered, is this going to be the norm? Or there are constant points of conflict? There's constant trigger points. And the answer to that was no. Uh, In fact, I have found that over time, that there has been deeper unity in the local churches, both that I served then and in the one that I serve now, and of the churches I am most familiar with, And so I stand in great encouragement. I am encouraged by where the church stands today, but not simply because I have a subjective experience that tells me so, because again, I had an experience that said the church is divided, but instead today, stepping back, we can look at data, which tells us that 
the church is in fact not as divided as some people pretend that it is. Now, I'm going to read to you an article from the Deseret News. Uh, this is the oldest publication, oldest ongoing publication in the Western United States. I do have to say as I begin reading this that it is its parent company is owned by the LDS, the Latter-day Saints. I am in no way endorsing them or their belief system in any way. Uh, but this is a publication that is a partisan publication and uh, it provides a lot of uh, helpful resources at times. And again, I'm not endorsing it or encouraging you to read it, but to say that this is one piece that was valuable because it referenced a third party. It referenced a nonpartisan research institute called the Public Religion Research Institute and a study that they had conducted. It says, the surprising share of Americans who don't see political divisions at a church. Now think about that. We were just told that this is such a big issue that it's causing uh, issues in our testimony to the uh, unbeliever, to the world that is looking at us, and it is something that is so polarizing the pastors are leaving the, the uh, pulpit in droves over it. It reads, reporters of all stripes, including me, have written hundreds if not thousands of articles in recent years about growing disdain between Republicans and Democrats and what it means for civil life civic life. Although I think those articles, for the most part, offered a fair and valuable assessment of a disturbing trend, I have to admit that they didn't tell the whole story. They rarely included insights from Americans who don't think rising partisanship is a problem in their community, a group that apparently includes many Christian churchgoers. Goers. Public Religion Research Institute's Health of Congregations survey released in May showed that just 13% of Christians who attend worship services at least a few times per year said their church is more divided by politics today than it was five years ago. Think about that. Only 13%. Most Christian churchgoers, 56%, said that their church is not more divided, while 30% said they were unsure. On a related note, large shares of churchgoers said their house of worship is doing somewhat well or very well discussing contentious political issues like racial justice, that's 77%, um, discrimination, 65%, abortion, 71%. Uh, it said that just 8% of Christian churchgoers said their congregation often or sometimes discussed President Donald Trump. These findings caught me off guard, which tells me I've been spending too much time reading news articles about church-related trends instead of speaking to actual churchgoers. I thought that was a pretty honest assessment by uh, the writer of this article, and so uh, I thought that was really interesting. It was written, by the way, by Kelsey Dallas, and this was published on July 11th of 2023. But it's a pretty insightful piece, and that was just a, a moment of it. But I want to encourage you there. Don't be discouraged. Don't think, well, the church is so divided, it can't be reconciled. There's no hope for us at all. That is simply nonsense. When you actually talk to people within local churches, you will find that we are not as divided as our culture at large says that we are. The second, as we read through this, uh, through the article, it said that uh, Christians need to be cautious about arguing over trivial matters. And this is important, by the way. Uh, multiple times in the New Testament, there are commands not to spend time quarreling about divisive topics such or, or uh, mysteries or s things that are trivial, such as genealogies 
and disputable matters. That is not to be the basis of the conversations that we have. And so there are times when we need to step back and we need to ask, are we allowing the main thing to be the main thing? Or, or are we allowing trivial matters to be so divisive that they undermine the mission for which the church has been called? And so I would encourage you today, don't argue over trivial matters. Now, in the history of Christianity, especially as it relates to, say, contemporary days, some of the topics that come to mind are issues such as musical styles. So what is your preference on the style of music? Is there one style that is holier than another? Hint. The answer is no. Uh, Attire. What sort of attire should we wear in the local church? There have been a lot of arguments and division over these sort of subjects. If it is extra biblical, then there is meaning to say if there's not a specific command in Scripture, nor is there a binding principle in Scripture, we have the freedom to make decisions. And so let's not argue over trivial matters. I would hope that the world wouldn't see people who are just arguing about anything and everything, and that members of local churches would find that when they walk into into the church building, when they are spending time with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, that they are not spending a lot of time arguing. The third, don't believe that the world's view of the church should drive decision-making. Now, we should care about our witness to the unbelieving world, which means that we should take care to resolve interpersonal conflicts in appropriate ways, keep conflicts out of the public arena, and strive to maintain the bond of peace even where sharp uh, disagreements occur. And so we do need to be mindful of the fact that the unbelieving world is watching what we do, and that they have a certain expectation for the way that believers ought to conduct themselves. We recognize that today. But at the same point, we don't believe that the world's perception of the church is accurate. Again, we just read down the article. And by the way, that's why I read from that specific article. The author of that article said, look, I was guilty of this. I listened to what people were saying about churchgoers instead of actually talking to churchgoers and asking them what they actually felt and what they believed to be true about their experience when they worshiped together. Sometimes, and especially as I look at articles like the ad that I had read from, there's this idea that the unbelieving world believes we are so polarized and we are so divisive that this must be true and we must be reactionary. We must be so concerned with how the world sees us that we do everything we can, including ordering our morning worship services, the songs that are selected, and even the sermons that are preached in order to accommodate the perception that the unbelieving world has about us. And the final don't is don't water down the truth for shallow attempts at unity. As I read through this, it said, uh, act- actively pursuing unity prioritizes human dignity above personal preferences. Now, uh, I agree that personal preferences should not trump our love for one another, and it should not uh, rise to the level where we diminish the value that we place upon human digni- dignity in order to accommodate personal preferences. At the same time, the only things... The only topics that this article references, and again, I don't know where the organization takes these subjects, but where this article takes these matters, the only issues that are addressed are political ones. Now, political identification is one thing, but political platforms are another. They reflect specific ideologies 
and worldviews. And the questions are, do those worldviews correspond with what the Bible teaches? Does the Bible teach anything that we can be certain of? Does it teach an objective reality? Does it have binding moral principle, principles upon all people at all times and all places? Do we believe that to be true? Has God re- written his law on the hearts of men or has he not? Well, when we understand that there are some values that are propped up by some worldviews that simply do not correspond with the truth of God's word. They do not correspond with uh, what we know to be true about God's uh, created order. Uh, then we push back against those ideologies, those false philosophies, and we under, understand that in the local church, we cannot provide room for them. Now, this is not to say, again, that anybody is to buy a political party or ideology, uh, hook line and sinker, or that somebody has to be a specific political party in order to be a believer or anything along those lines. We are not endorsing any form of Christian nationalism in one way or another. But at the same point, when we step back and we say that some of the topics that are discussed that are kind of dismissed in this article as quote-unquote political are not political matters, and they're not simply the result of personal preferences and party affiliation, but they are pushed back against ideologies and worldviews that do not correspond with the truth of God's word. And Christians in those cases, wherever they might be expressed, certainly have a right to speak freely on those matters and to be very strong in their convictions as they address them. But I just gave you four things not to do. Don't be discouraged. Don't argue over trivial matters. Don't believe that the world's view of the church should drive decision-making, and don't water down the truth for shallow attempts at so-called unity. But I want to talk to you about a few things that we should do to build and maintain unity instead of just things not to do. So the first is to realize the gospel and to walk in it. I want to encourage you today with the fact that the basis of our unity in the New Testament is the gospel. As I was reading through this article, it says, But unity isn't erasure or blind acceptance. It's an effort to love one another as image bearers of God. Now, our identity is an important starting point, I'd like to add. Not because it affirms whomever we choose to be or however we choose to live, but because when our identity is properly grounded in Christ, we have a clear idea of behavior to eliminate and an idea of the direction to which God is transforming our nature. We should embody Philippians chapter 1, where we are increasingly becoming more like Jesus Christ. And along those lines, if we recognize that our fellow brother or sister in Christ, uh, that their identity, of course, is grounded in Christ, then we will properly love one another, which means that when we love one another, we don't simply coexist to hear one another's stories, but instead to encourage one another and to hold each other accountable. We recognize that we are all striving, imperfectly, by the way, but we are striving and we are being empowered by the Holy Spirit, which is perfect, but we are being empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And so in these fragile jars of clay and our brokenness, Uh, We do stumble in many ways, and we need people to hold us accountable. We need people to encourage us. We need people to come alongside and say, your nature, your identity is not grounded 
in these extra things, but instead it's grounded in Christ. Now, when we do that and we come from that perspective of the fact that we are sojourners in this world, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are children of God, that is all who have responded in saving faith to the gospel message of Jesus Christ, are children of God. When we have that that foundation, then we are able to do things that build one another up and that don't tear each other down. And we're able to help the other realize their greatest good, which is to bring Jesus Christ the most possible glory, to be clothed in his righteousness and to increasingly be like him. And so if I was to add a do for that, it would be do value one another in Christ and build one another up accordingly. The second do is do encourage the church to dive into the word. As I was reading through, again, just this is just a brief article, but as I was reading through it, it's kind of an ad, as I was reading through it about this organization and how we're going to make people, we're going to help them become culturally informed. We're going to increase their cultural intelligence and those sort of things. The thing that really struck me was that Uh, Our core problem isn't that we need more cultural education. Sure, education's a great thing. I would love for all of us to study God's created world, his order of things, the purpose for which things were created, how our world works, how everything interacts with each other, how it all exists to reflect and to honor and to glorify the creator and not the created. But as we reflect upon the purpose of education, I, I do want to to note that our core problem, the the problem in humanity, the reason there's toxicity, the, the reason that there is division in this world isn't because we have a lack of information or a lack of education. It's a problem of the heart. We need to have a heart transformation. There's a sin problem. We live in a fallen world. Believers have been saved from the from the penalty of sin. We are increasingly being released from the power of sin, and someday we will be once and for all removed from the presence of sin. So we have that living hope, but we recognize in this fallen state, even as we walk in this earth, we know that we will not experience sinless perfectionism, that we will struggle at various points. Where there is division between us and another believer, we need to be transformed by the reading of God's word. And I fear, as I'm reading through an article like this, and I don't know how they, they fully meant it, and, I, and so I, I don't want to comment on their hard intent, but as I'm using that as a springboard, and I see so much happening in our culture, where there are so many efforts at trying to educate our way out of brokenness, trying to educate our way out of disorder, trying to bridge these divisive, toxic gaps, which I recognize do exist. They they do. Again, not to the degree that people are projecting or presenting, presenting that they do, but they're in a fallen world, there's always going to be some measure of division in the local body. And as that exists, what do we need to know better? Well, we need to know the Word of God. One of the things I don't hear often enough is the fact that God's people need educated, but we need educated in the word. Christianity Today, just a few years ago, they ran a article, and this is this was published on April 20th, 2022, so just a year and a half ago, and it says in it, now the title is, Report 26 Million Americans Stopped Reading the Bible Regularly During COVID-19. Um, it's written by Adam Mc, uh, McInnes, 
And it says that only 10%, according to a recent study, only 10% of professing Christians read their Bible daily. Now, how are we ever going to even recognize what toxicity means? How are we ever going to recognize what the core problem of humanity is if we're not reading the Bible? How are we ever going to understand how to encourage one another, how to build one another up? Or all we have to offer bumper sticker cliches of encourage one another, do not judge, love one another. Those are great truths, by the way, when they are understood in context. But do we just throw these aphorisms out there as commands without any context surrounding them, without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, without the goal of growing in our, in our identity in Christ to better reflect and glorify Him? If we remove those from everything that adds substance to those commands, we don't have the good news. We just have urges to try harder. We have commands to just try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Try harder and it'll be okay. But the Bible isn't going to teach you just about human effort. It's going to talk to you about the transformation of the Holy Spirit who is at work in the life of the believer. And so today, I would encourage you to encourage the church to dive into the Word. If we want to see unity, and if the basis of the unity in the New Testament, the basis of all of the doctrinal commands and the uh, the commands of fellowship, all of those commands are grounded in deep theology. All of the Pauline epistles that conclude with those specific commands, they do so after they've already established a foundation of faith upon which each member of the local church is to build their life upon. Finally today, do walk as though you belong to one another in Christ. I would really love to challenge you with this, that, you know, if we're going to encourage one another in the word, if we're going to have relationships with one another, we can speak truth into somebody's life. We can hold them accountable. If they're living in sin, we can hold them accountable, not because we're being judgmental, we hate them, but because we want them to honor and glorify Jesus as they grow into his likeness. And we want people to do the same for us, by the way, that there has to be reciprocity. We have to be able to to communicate the same way to people that they communicate to us in love with the desire to, to worship Jesus Christ. If If we're going to do that, that only happens when there's a deep relationship. And I want to encourage you today, if you're part of a local church, you are part of a family of God. In local churches, we are bound by covenant relationships, meaning not simply that, well, I disagree with this, so I walk out the door, or somebody said something, I didn't like it, so I'm done, and I break the relationship, and I don't say anything. One of the things that grieves me the most is that you'll have members who've been part of a church for many years, and they get upset about something, and rather than seeking reconciliation, Rather than letting somebody know that, that there's been conflict, that their feelings were hurt, rather than trying to build through that, we shy away and we just leave. We don't talk to anybody. And weeks pass or months, and we never reach out to anybody and try to, to repair what has been broken. We don't take time to have those hard conversations about, you know, I'm made in the image of God, and I'm, I'm growing my faith, but I wrestle and I stumble in many ways, and I'm sorry that my sin hurt you, and I'm sorry that it grieved you, and I'm sorry that there was division as a basis, but but as as Christ has, has forgiven me, would you forgive me as well? Do we approach people like that? You know, I forgive you in Christ because Christ has forgiven me of so much. Do we even create space for there to be humble expressions and forgiveness 
Or do we just walk away when there's division? Do we just go down to the church down the road? Do we believe that we belong to a family when we are part of a local church? That there is a specific purpose, that we are to grow in doctrinal unity. As we grow in doctrinal unity, that we will increasingly reflect what we believe to be true. We will walk in that. Um, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you, the psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 11. Do we embody that? Do we resemble that? I hope that as, as faithful children of God, that we would increasingly live unified lives with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Do I believe that our country is as divided as the news says it is? I don't. Do I believe that our churches are as divided as the news says it is? They are. No, I do not. But I do believe that in a fallen world, there are always going to be opportunities for division. And the enemy certainly wants that for each and every church. It is the responsibility of the believer to do many things. And I've outlined some of those. And again, just to reiterate, don't be discouraged. Don't argue over trivial matters. Don't believe that the world's view of the church should drive decision-making. Don't water down the truth for shallow pursuits of unity. But do value one another in Christ and build one another up accordingly. Do encourage the church to dive into the word and do walk as though you belong to one another in Christ. I look forward to discussing subjects like this more with you next week. May the Lord bless you.